Macworld Podcast number 129 for August 27th, 2008, sponsored by MYOB, small business accounting and point-of-sale software, helping you to mind your own business. Smart. Welcome to another Macworld Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Breen. Beijing threw a little party a couple of weeks ago that, as far as I can tell from NBC's coverage, featured a remarkably fast swimmer and a lot of women in bikinis, which is, I assume, some sort of Baywatch spinoff, I think. Pro photographer and frequent Macworld contributor Derek Story was in Beijing helping to set up the media center, and he'll join us to talk about his experiences. Following my talk with Derek, Rick Mischleski, my old pal from the Mac user days, and I talk about his coverage of the recent Intel Developer Forum, a conference held in San Francisco where Intel provided a glimpse at some of the technologies that may make their way to a Mac near you in the not-too-distant future. Before we get to those interviews, a little news and crankiness. Yep, that's right, I said crankiness. I don't know if it's summer coming to an end before I'm ready for it or the phase of the moon or the fact that I'll probably never get 3G network coverage where I live, but I'm just cranky. And because I am, I'd like to share a cranky thought with you now. And that cranky thought involves Earthlink. I recently penned a Mac 911 blog called Earthlink and the Devil's Spam Filter, and given the title, you'd assume that I would have gotten it out of my system by now, but no. It's like this. Every so often I get requests for Mac troubleshooting help from people, and on occasion I reply to those messages. When I do, it's a cold slap in the face when I receive an auto-reply message that begins, I apologize for this automatic reply to your email. To control spam, I now allow incoming messages only from senders I have approved beforehand. Because, you know, I've made an effort to lend someone a hand, and in order to complete that effort, I'm supposed to fire up my web browser, visit an Earthlink page, yes, because it's always Earthlink, enter a code, and press send so my message won't end up in someone's suspected spam mailbox. What's happening here is that Earthlink uses something called Spam Blocker, and with its highest setting, which is not on by default, it imposes this challenge and response scheme on people who try to send email to Earthlink members, and it drives me nuts. When writing about this, Spam Blocker's product manager bravely entered our forums and commented and did his best to explain Earthlink's point of view. It wasn't on by default. Earthlink warns its customers that people they correspond with may not like it. If you use webmail, there's an option to automatically add people you send mail to to a whitelist of approved recipients. And finally, that Earthlink's customers were very happy with it because it kept spam out of their mailboxes. Fine. But... What Earthlink has done is made its customers' spam problems my problems. Sure, they don't have to suffer the inconvenience of dealing with spam, but I, as someone who receives one of these idiotic auto-replies, has to make an effort so my reply isn't misfiled. And the our-customers-like-it excuse? You know, I bet people who smoke really liked it when they could puff away on airplanes and in restaurants. But it turns out they aren't the only people in the world. And perhaps there are others around them who don't want to be polluted with their secondhand smoke or their auto replies. Challenge and response as a way of dealing with spam is outmoded and ultimately selfish. If you can't handle your spam problems, I suggest that you take a hard look at C Command's $30 spam sieve. It's a wonderful utility and highly effective. 
And if you're an Earthlink customer and happy with its service, might I suggest that you disable this feature if you want to make friends and influence people? Sheesh. And now Derek Story and I discuss Apple and the Olympics. PhotoPro O'Reilly editor, book author, and frequent Macworld contributor Derek Story has just returned from the 2008 Summer Olympics held in Beijing, China. He was there on assignment from Apple and Kodak to help set up and maintain the media center. Given the Apple-centric nature of the media center, I thought it would be interesting to get Derek's take on it and the Olympics. And thanks very much for joining me, Derek. Oh, it's a blast being here. Hi, Chris. So did I characterize your assignment correctly? I think pretty much. I mean, that's the glorified version that I live by and tell all my friends anyway. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, actually, that is true. So I was working in the main press center uh, in the Olympic Village, and it's one of the two ginormous buildings there. The other one, which is even bigger, which is the International Broadcast Center where where Bob Costas was. Uh, Mm -hmm. They wouldn't let me in there. because you had to have a specific type of pass for everything that you did at the Olympics. And downstairs in the main press center is uh, where we had the digital photography workstations, where the photographers would come in from the venues with their memory cards full of good stuff, uh, Olympic goodness that no one else had seen yet. And uh, they would process them and then uh, upload them to the various publications and agencies that they work for. And I was in there helping them do that to make sure that everything happened the way it was supposed to. Cool. Now, I take it the idea here, at least from Apple's perspective, was to expose professional photographers to Aperture and the Mac. And how'd that go? That went really well. It's it's very interesting. The, the way the press center was set up, uh, we had like 50 Lenovo workstations for mm-hmm. Windows users, and then we had 50 Mac Pro workstations with uh, Transmit. Photoshop, uh, Aperture, and Photo Mechanic loaded on them, mm-hmm. and the big 30-inch cinema displays that are absolutely gorgeous. And then the rest were just open spaces where they could bring their laptops and work on that if they wanted. And so a lot of them would come in with the laptops that they've been lugging around for years and years and years, trying to photo edit on these little screens, uh, like they probably normally do. Mm-hmm. And then they'd kind of look over their shoulder, and they'd see some guy working on a 30-inch cinema display going, wow, you know, how do I get some of that? <laughs> and, uh, and and the answer is quite quite easy. We can help you uh, do that. We can get you set up in just a matter of minutes, and then you can upload your stuff, and then we can just copy everything back to your laptop if you want. Uh, so, you know, no harm done at all, and you'll work faster. And by doing that, uh, we really had the opportunity to expose photographers to the set of Mac tools that are available for them. And it was quite fun doing that. It was like a little bit like, ooh, look what I get to show you. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about that. Did you get much resistance to Aperture from any photographers? For example, did they insist, no, I've got to have Lightroom or I need Nikon Capture NX or something? Well, uh, Lightroom was virtually, I hate to say it, was virtually non-existent hmm. in, the, in the press room. What the, these guys are coming in with mainly uh, was Photo Mechanic and Photoshop. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't know about Photo Mechanic because it's usually only used by uh, event photographers who have to go through a lot of photos. And it's actually quite good at that. It's a good photo browser raw decoder that allows you to work very fast. 
So a lot of them use Photo Mechanic or they just use Photoshop. And I, and when I say using Photoshop, I mean Photoshop, not even Bridge. I mean, they would have like, you know, 75 Photoshop windows open, like accordion style, you know. Yeah, yeah. And they'd be clicking through them, you know, looking for the shot that they wanted and all that kind of stuff. And those were the guys that I thought we had a real opportunity to, to show them an easier way to do their workflow. And some would just be too busy and say, you know, go away. Uh, and then others would say, hey, um, actually, I got a few minutes. Uh, I've been hearing about Aperture. Uh, show it to me. Oh, okay. And, and did they say, oh, go away, except let me jack into that 30-inch display with my laptop and then go away. <laughs> right, right. And uh, what are you doing with those uh, Mac Pros anyway after the Olympics are <laughs> over? I got that question a lot, too. Well, I had some – somebody was commenting on a, a story that we had about this um, saying – and I don't know if this is an issue. Maybe you can tell me – that when you import your images into Aperture, it puts them into its database. What happened to those images once the photographer left? Uh, anything that goes into apertures is pretty easy to get out because basically what aperture does is just holds it in the database, lets you do your stuff. But the minute you say, hey, I want to export all of my master raw files out or I want to export out all of my uh, working files, all the stuff that I edited, uh, you can just do that in mass, you know, and just it'll right. just put them in a folder for you. And then they can burn that folder to a DVD or put it on a flash drive or a hard drive. I really liked photographers that came in with hard drives because it was so much easier to, to move the stuff around. Or they can put it up on their server, you know, whatever they want to do. But it's not really trapped in there at all. And, in fact, the photographers that sort of enjoyed the Aperture experience, then we would create a project for them that we could drop that on their hard drive. It had all of their work, their metadata, their masters, the whole deal. Mm -hmm. And then they could go home and download the 30-day free trial and uh, keep you know playing with Aperture and, and decide if it's something that they wanted to uh, hang on to or not. So we actually didn't meet much resistance in terms of getting stuff back out. That wasn't a problem. Yeah, yeah. Now, what was Kodak's involvement in here? I mean, I know they're the huge name in photography, but how relevant are they? Well, you know, they are, and uh, this was a good experience for me because I, I got to learn more about Kodak, too, because they were actually, you know, our bosses. Mm -hmm. They were the ones that organized all this and had been working on this for years, and they were handling everything. They set up uh, the, the whole photography area there, coordinated all the photographers with, uh, with the vests, you know, the Kodak vests, that, you know, where each photographer had their own uh, number, uh, they they helped them with venue access. They they got Nikon there. They got Canon there. They got Lexar there. They got Sandus there. Uh, they worked with the IOC. I mean, on and on and on. And then they were providing printing services mm -hmm. for the photographers. And uh, they handled the picture of the day uh, thing. So I mean, they they ran the whole thing. It, it was like watching a mini Olympics itself, <laughs> uh, you know, with with Kodak. And they they did it really wonderfully. So uh, I have to say that the thing that I learned about Kodak is that they have a lot of uh, a lot of tools in the toolbox, and yeah. they can do a lot of things, and, and we forget about that because we associate them so much with just film mm -hmm. photography. But man, they <laughs> they can do just about everything. They were they were quite amazing. Yeah. Now we have a lot of listeners who are photographers, and I'm sure they'd be interested to know the kind of gear that you took with you. So what was in your bag? 
So I wanted to have a bag that I could have with me all the time because I knew I was going to be constantly on the go, never really knowing when I was going to get back to the hotel. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, the minute I'm off shift, I'm, you know, in Olympic Village or I'm in Beijing or I'm doing something and, you know, I got time to sleep on the plane coming home. So I put together a bag that uh, had uh, a MacBook computer, mm-hmm. and I took a MacBook because it was small and light and it would fit in my photography bag, yet it had all the ports and stuff for external hard drives, you know, so I could carry a couple of, let's see, rugged drives for backup and for, you know, managing my pictures. Mm-hmm. So I actually had that in my bag, along with uh, one Canon 5D body, which is sort of my go-to body. Mm-hmm. And then I had a Canon 70 to 200 millimeter uh, L telephoto, the F4 one, which is a little bit lighter. Mm-hmm. And I had a 1.4 tele uh, extender on it, so it would actually go all the way out to 280 millimeters, which I use for like the volleyball shots and some of that stuff that you may have seen. Mm-hmm. And then I took a new lens, which I just have fallen in love with. Uh, it's a 50 millimeter Sigma F. F1.4 lens, and it's really fast. Uh, you can shoot with it in existing light uh, in almost any condition, and it was just fabulous. I could, I, I would just carry the 5D with that lens on it, and in any lighting condition, I could get a shot just like that and not have to worry about flash. It was a terrific lens. And then I had one other piece of glass. I only took three pieces of glass, and that was the 16 to 35 L lens. It's an F. 2.8, and it's the new one, the one that they just came out with like a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. And that was for my wide-angle stuff. And uh, that's, that's another terrific lens. So I, what I did was I figured if I, could, if I were on a desert island or in Beijing or in China, <laughs> you know, and I could only take three lenses, what would they be? And uh, it was those three lenses plus the uh, tele-extender. And then I had one more piece, and that was the Canon G9, which is sort of the their pocket camera it's more like a jacket pocket camera mm-hmm. but it uh it shoots raw and i was using it uh to shoot movies i shot a lot of movies with it and i recorded audio too and i was longing for nothing else as i every time i reached in my bag while i was in china i had something that would do the job and i was as happy as could be and it all fit over my shoulder tripod or monopod i took a monopod and uh because uh, in, in that situation, uh, they're so much easier to use. And I actually have one of those uh, tripod collars for my 70 to 200 mm-hmm. that mounts on the monopod. And that's nice because then you're mounting your lens to the monopod. It's very balanced. And you can just you know whip your camera from vertical to horizontal very easy. And it's very light. So I took the monopod with the, uh, with the specific collar for the Canon lens. And uh, again... Uh, very light on the shoulder, and I was very happy to have it. I never really needed a tripod, so I was glad that I didn't schlep one around Beijing for two weeks. Yeah, so how was it shooting in China versus other places you've been? Did you feel a little more constrained about what you could and couldn't shoot? Well, I had a media pass, uh, which uh, you hang around your neck. They're like the yellow rectangle things, and that's also your visa. So it's a very important document along with your passport, 
but and you wear it all the time. And what I discovered was by wearing that all the time, uh, it just opened up doors for me. People would would let me in just about basically anywhere I wanted. So I had no resistance at all unless I tried to get into a venue that I didn't have access to. And then, of course, they say, you have to stop now. Uh, in terms of the people themselves, uh, everything that you've probably heard on the Olympic broadcast uh, was true to my experience. The, the Beijing citizens uh, opened their arms to the world. They were friendly. They, uh, they let me take pictures whenever I wanted. If I pointed a camera to them, uh, you know, they would you know, meet me back and make eye contact. Uh, they had me pose with their children and their pets and everything else. <laughs> I mean, it was it was really something. I have one anecdote that I've told a few times that I was coming back on the subway uh, from pretty far away from the other side of the city, and I had to get to work. And I had been up for like 26 hours straight. Mm. I was tired. And I was just sort of leaning against the wall on the subway because they're, they're, the subways are fabulous, but, you know, there's a lot of people on them. I was just sort of leaning against the wall, and they had the people on that train. Uh, they coordinated this little effort where they had someone get up off one of the benches. Uh, they made a little room. Uh, they formed a little half circle, and then two of them came and they got me, and they insisted that I sit down on the bench uh, so that I could rest, uh, you know, for the rest of the ride. Oh, how nice! I mean, it, seriously, and it was sincere. This wasn't, you know, with the government looking over the shoulder. This was just people being people kind of thing. So uh, I thought that the people of China, for this event, they they opened their arms to us, and I had a great experience. Oh, that's great. Okay, one last question. Where can I get a gig like this? Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually get that question a fair amount. Really? Imagine yeah. that. Huh. Imagine that. Getting to go to the Olympics and shoot and uh, hang out. Yeah. Hmm. Well, and, and, and you know the uh, event that I got uh, for the photography part, right, was the beach volleyball, which was... Uh, yeah, well, there there really only were two events there. I don't know, you know, yeah. maybe you, you couldn't tell from NBC's coverage, but they right. had swimming and they had beach volleyball and that was yeah. it. Yeah, I was there during the first week, and those two events definitely dominated our consciousness. Uh, yeah, so I got the beach volleyball gig, too, uh, on top huh. of all that. Do you imagine that? That's terrible. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure quite how I got it. I think, uh, like many things, I happen to be the right guy in the right spot with the, uh, with the right uh, know-how, and I think that's what happened here. Okay. Well, seriously, if people want to learn more about your travels and everything else in the universe of Derek's story, where should they go? Well, uh, a good place to go is you know my blog where I post a lot of this stuff, which is uh, The Digital Story, www.thedigitalstory. It's, it's a great place uh, for all around. It's a virtual camera club. And it's open to everyone. And then also uh, the Aperture story is pretty interesting, and I recorded a lot of podcasts uh, with photographers in Beijing that I'm going to be running on uh, the Inside Aperture site, which is an O'Reilly media site, mm-hmm. and that's uh, digitalmedia.oreilly.com slash Aperture. Right, and then Deke is hosting some of your pictures, right? Yeah, Deke, uh, Deke's always on the lookout for content. Uh, you know, he's got his Deke.com uh, in high gear, it's a, it's a terrific site for, especially for Photoshop enthusiasts. And uh, yeah, he he got a, a nice little portfolio out. I mean, he said, "I want them big," so uh, <laughs> so he got big shots. So there's, if you want to see big shots, go to deep.com. Yeah, and I, I thought that fireworks shot you took was beautiful. 
I mean, Thank just, you. What did you take that with? Was that, which lens did you use? That was the with the Sigma 50. Really? Yeah, and I was standing right outside the bird's nest. Uh, I had to get a special pass to, to be in that area, and, and I got it at the 11th hour. And I actually had the wrong lens on the camera. I was planning on shooting with the 16 to 35. So I was there, and they caught me off guard. They just started firing off the fireworks. And so I just, like, pointed up with whatever I had and just started firing. And uh, actually, those are some of my favorite shots. Well, that's great. And you've been kind enough to let us use some of those images. So we will uh, point to those in the show notes. And I'd like to thank you very much for being here. Thanks, Chris. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. It's been a long time since we did a podcast together. It's good to do. It is, and I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Derek. Thank you so much. Before Rick Mischleski and I talk about the Intel Developer Forum, a word from our sponsor, MYOB. Are you a small business owner looking for an easy-to-set-up point-of-sale solution? Look no further. New from MYOB, the company who brings you award-winning Account Edge accounting software, is Checkout, a point-of-sale system only for the Mac. Created with the realities of retail in mind, Checkout provides an easy-to-learn, efficient, and reliable way to make sales and manage your store. Get up and running in 15 minutes and start spending more time with your customers. Learn more at www.myob-us.com. Now, the Intel Developer Forum. I'm Skyped in with Rick Mischleski, one of the seasoned hands in the Mac world. Rick has worked at Mac User as the executive editor and then became editor-in-chief of Mac Addict. He recently attended the Intel Developer Forum in San Francisco and wrote his impressions for Mac World. We're here to talk about that conference and what it means for Mac users. Thanks for being here, Rick. Hey, no problems at all. So let's start with the basics. What is the Intel Developer Forum and who attends? Intel Developer Forum is an international uh, event, and it's held twice a year, and it is attended by such an incredible assortment of geeks that you would not believe. <laughs> There's were approximately 6,000 people there, and I would say just from my you know informal review, about 40% were from the United States and about 60% were from all over the world. And it's, it's really astonishing. If you've ever been to an Apple developers conference, it's remarkably different. Uh, two major reasons. There were no T-shirts. Uh, no one was wearing T-shirts. Everybody was in you know, business casual, lots mm-hmm. of ties. And the other thing is they feed you, and they feed you really well. What? <laughs> yes, they do. Yeah, you mean the common folks or, or the press? Oh, no, everybody. Everybody gets fed. And uh, constant food and changes through the day. And if you like cookies, they got them. You like Mountain Dew? There's tons of it, but uh, it was it's, it's really remarkable. And the the, the conferences the, there's 15 per hour mm-hmm. uh, sessions, and so it's uh, really impossible to see everything. So lots of people send lots of companies send multiple people for obvious reasons. So at 15 per hour, I was only able to see a you know a handful, uh, and also my head started to explode after a while. The conferences are divided into three different levels: mm-hmm. one star, two star, and three star with one star being pretty much run by marketing people and their basic introductions to technologies. Two star is where they get down and dirty. And then three star is for the people who are actually, you know, the really true hardcore, uh, I want my chip to interface with your chip. How do we do it? Mm-hmm. People. I was a two star guy, I'm afraid. Right. Not, uh, 
Not a three-star guy. Okay. Now, the conference featured a fair amount of buzz about a new microprocessor architecture. What's the buzz about, and what's in it for Mac users? Well, what's in it for Mac users is pretty straightforward in that uh, since Apple switched to Intel chips, pretty much the next generation of Intel microprocessors will be the next generation of Apple microprocessors. And uh, Intel puts out processors on what it refers to as, as its TikTok uh What's the word I'm looking for? TikTok uh, rhythm. Hmm. In that, uh, I can never remember which is a tick and which is a talk. But <laughs> one is when they improve the process. Process being the way the actual chip is made, and they're shrinking the uh, size of the transistors in the chip over and over again. So the last, uh, or the current, I should say, processor process is what was introduced with Penryn, which is the uh, chip family that's in current Max. And so then the one that's coming up will be using the same process, but it's an entirely new architecture. And so the one after that will be the same uh, architecture, but a new process. They're going to go down to 32 nanometers. So chips are shrinking, and shrinking is good, uh, despite what you may think when you jump in the pool. Uh, <laughs> it's in, in the sense that uh, the smaller a processor's transistors, or the actually the closer together they are and the, and the smaller, the cooler and less power that the processor can run. And so we're at 45 nanometer right now with, with a Penryn process that's going to be used in this next entirely new architecture, which is called Nehalem. Okay, so the problem, though, is that when you get really small, like we're getting now at 45 nanometers and smaller... I mean, 45 nanometers is really small. I mean, yeah. there's 3,000 45 nanometers is the width of Oprah Winfrey's hair. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's, they're really tiny. So at this size, though, you start getting a lot of leakage and power leaks. It, you know, the switches are so small, the transistor switches are so small that you leak power. And so things heat up, you lose uh, power efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. So in Penryn and then now also in the Halem, there's going to be an entirely new, uh, there is now an entirely new type of uh, transistor, what's called the gate. And the gate is at the actual switch. The cool thing about it, though, is in Penryn, you know, they shrunk the gate. I mean, they, they made this new ki- kind of gate, which you do, don't really want to know the details of. I mean, you can look it up, and I could tell you, but you'd start snoozing. Uh, they, but they added in the Nehalem processor a power control unit. And the this power control unit is really amazing in that it's on the chip and it's, it itself has a million transistors. Right. And that's astonishing considering yeah. that like, you know, when the 8086, which was the uh, first real major Intel processor was invented 30 years ago, there were 29,000 transistors yeah. in the whole blasted uh, chip. Now it's 1 million just to control the power. And what this thing will do is the power control unit keeps an eye on every single part of the uh, processor's cores, you know, the place where all the number crunching and mm-hmm. data crunching is going on. And if things slow down, if things uh, aren't being used, it shuts them off immediately. Right. And if things are being used, uh, it gives it all the power it needs. And there's a whole new thing called turbo mode. Mm-hmm. I, I love marketing departments. <laughs> turbo mode means that, okay, not all software is written to take advantage of all the processor cores. We know this from testing. You've seen it. Uh, So what Turbo Mode will do is the power control unit will look at how many cores are being used, and if 
a core or two or more is not being used, it'll not only shut them down, but it'll also speed up the core that is being used. Because since there's power that's being ignored, you can stay within the same power envelope, but you can speed up the other processors. So you can go up by 133 megahertz per tick. They call them ticks. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's say you have a four-processor, uh, pardon me, a four-core processor working. Well, if three of those processors you know, aren't being used because the software isn't written to take advantage of them, the power control unit will boost the working processor up by three ticks, which I can't do the math really fast, but it sounds like 399 megahertz. So the thing will speed up. Right. So we're talking about faster and less power. Yeah. That's sort of Intel's whole thing these days is, uh, is power. Right. Uh, you know, they, they're talking about per watt uh, instructions. And uh, Nehalem is taking another step in that direction. So, you know, you'll, you won't have the fan noise that you have in my, my Power Mac G5 right now that your listeners might be hearing in the background. <laughs> and you also will have longer battery life. And because so many people are going to laptops now, this is vital. Yeah, it appears, according to Intel, that this quarter or next quarter will be the first time in history where more laptops were sold than desktops uh, worldwide. They're looking at mobile computer users and, and perhaps spending less time thinking about desktops. Yeah, and not only that, but uh, also data centers. Mm -hmm. And let's say you know, Google has you know, a, a squillion processors uh, processing a squillion requests at any given moment. That uses a lot of power. That's really expensive. That's carbon foot, footprint Bigfoot. And so when you can put processors into those data centers that use a lot less power, that saves these data centers a whole heck of a lot of cash. Right. Okay, so let's look now at storage. Um, Intel's working on a new solid-state drive as well. What gives it that new SSD smell? Okay, this is their second generation of uh, SSDs. SSD meaning solid-state drive. And they're... They actually have a couple different kinds. There's uh, one, which they call mainstream, which sort of tells you where they plan to sell it, and another called extreme. And extreme isn't what you'd think. Normally, when Intel calls something extreme, it means for gamers. In this case, extreme means for data centers. And so uh, the uh, mainstream ones are notably faster than the previous generation of SSDs. They showed uh, a number of demos comparing the new Intel SSDs versus other companies' SSDs. Now, of course, you know, they're not going to say, well, and we're just the same as they are. No, of course not. They're, but they showed uh, pretty impressive demonstrations on how their SSDs are faster. And how did they do that? Oh, they, they, would, they ran uh, benchmarks uh, on laptops, actually, right. in most cases. They ran a number of demos, but they ran benchmarks on laptops, uh, both synthetic benchmarks, just doing uh, IOPS, you know, in, input-output right. uh, operations, and and using real applications. And in all cases, the Intel uh, SSDs were doing quite well. Yeah. So these things are fairly expensive now. Yes, and, they uh, are. And when are we going to see significant price drops? Well, when I wrote about this for uh, MacWorld.com, I tried to do a little bit of a comparison where I said, when LCD panels first came out, the first Apple one was a 15-incher that cost $2,000. And that was uh, 10 years ago. And now you can't even find a 15-inch LCD. And 19-inch LCD panels are going for 150 bucks. 
So uh, I think we can see some price drops pretty quickly. Intel was very, very clear on that they're very committed to this. They were talking about billions of gigabytes of SSDs in the near future, and they're ramping up a number of their uh, fabs, which are fabrication plants, to do SSD chips uh, almost solely because it's even a smaller uh, process than the the uh, microprocessors. It's 34 nanometer. Yeah. So they're going to be pumping a lot of money into it, and eventually those prices will come down. When they come down, you know, uh, depends on everything from the United States balance of trade to the strength of the dollar to, uh, you know, how many of them you're, you want to buy. And I wouldn't expect SSDs to supplant hard drives for any time in the near future. Hard drives really have their place. I mean, they're really wonderful things. Yeah. But uh, SSDs also will start dropping in price, and uh, they're going to be they're going to be around. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about WiMAX. Um, this is another thing that Intel was pushing that week. What do WiMAX and the competing technology LTE do for the wireless world? Well, it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of competing technologies. LTE is sort of the major competing technology. What they do is they are completely built for broadband wireless out of the out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Some of the other wireless technologies for broadband uh, are sort of tweaks and squeezes and, oh, can we ever get this running faster of cell phone technology or mobile phone technology? So what LTE, uh, the major competitor and WiMAX do, is they're going to be able to give you true uh, broadband speed and pretty darn fast broadband speed in a couple of years uh, up to 50 kilometers or 31 miles away from a base station. Yeah. So, you know, remember how uh, oh, a year or so ago, there was all this big deal about Wi-Fi being uh, spread all over a city. Right. Well, I was writing articles in those days going, don't do it. <laughs> Stop. Because it's, that's such an investment when WiMAX and LTE are just around the corner. Right. Well, is any of that infrastructure built yet, or is this something they're going to have to drive around in trucks and plant a tower every 30 kilometers or so? Uh, 50 kilometers, but hey, who's counting? Uh, Yeah, they're going to have to do that. That's going to be billions of dollars. It's already happening in other countries. So the United States has a really nice infrastructure of Internet, and other countries really don't. They So of all places, the real big WiMAX central right now is Pakistan uh-huh. because they, they're not replacing anything. They're just building something new. And so the United States companies are, there are some uh, build outs that are happening now in like Oregon and, and back East and places like that for tests. But right now the WiMAX standard is uh, what they call WiMAX version one, 1. 1.0. Uh, and, you know, it's not entirely clear and probably is clear to engineers, but it's not entirely clear to me how much upgrade that'll have to be. There will have to be to get to WiMAX 2.0, which is when we're going to be around uh, 300 megabits per second or so. Mm-hmm. Well, whose trucks are these though? I mean, these the telcos that are going to distribute yeah. this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be telcos okay. or, you know, telcos or, uh, you know, dedicated, uh, WiMAX companies. There's a Clearwire, which comes out of uh, the, the Northwest. Mm-hmm. I don't know of them as a telco. I only know of them as a, as a uh, wireless broadband company. And they're one of, the, one of the groundbreakers, one of the pioneers. But as the old saying goes, pioneers get the arrows and settlers get the land. <laughs> 
So uh, after the pioneers do do what they do, AT and T may very well move in. Well, you'd think so. I mean, because you have to have a fairly deep pocket to be able to pull off this kind of infrastructure development. Yeah, they do indeed. Intel projects that by 2012 there will be 200 million uh, long-range wireless broadband uh, subscribers, and that'll be half LTE and half WiMAX. Is that worldwide or domestic? That's worldwide. Okay. Let's talk another processor, uh, microprocessor architecture. That's Larrabee. Oh, Larrabee is cool. Yeah. Just because of the cowboy name, I think. Uh, that's got to be it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me want to put my feet up and eat beans, I'll tell you. It's, uh, Larrabee is a very interesting neither fish nor fowl item. There's been, I think, uh, among the Geekarati, there's been so much discussion and uh, rumors and talk about Larrabee. And Intel still isn't giving the absolute final details on Larrabee. But what it basically is, is a highly multi-core chip. Highly meaning they were showing uh, test results of up to 64 cores in a Larrabee chip. Those were test results, obviously, so that's still in the lab. But, you know, anywhere between 16 and up is probably what it's going to be. Each of those cores is fully programmable, which is completely unlike uh, graphics processing units or GPUs. GPUs are hardwired, and they're hardwired to be massively parallel also, but uh, they have dedicated parts of the core that do, like, pixel shading and stuff like that for uh, games and scenes and various uh, other graphics and video things. Larrabee, on the other hand, is completely programmable. Uh, using the good old-fashioned uh, Intel architecture, the uh, x86, you know, 30-year-old Intel architecture that's been tweaked for 30 years, And so what, uh, let's say, a game developer will be able to do will be able to change the action of the processor on a, you know, clock cycle by clock cycle basis so that if they need a lot of pixel shading, well, all the processors can do that. And then uh, two clock cycles or five clock cycles next, they need a lot of vertex shading. Then they'll all switch over to vertex shaders. And so you'll have a lot more uh, capabilities and therefore a lot more speed. Okay, so apart from these technologies appearing in a computer near you, where else are we likely to see them? Are, are these things going to start showing up on our refrigerators? And Yeah, that was the, one of the most interesting things to me about IDF, uh, Intel Developer Forum, in general, was that the majority of the keynotes, and there were, I think, if I remember correctly, seven of them, uh, did not discuss computers. Yeah. They, dis- they discussed consumer electronics. They discussed uh, MIDs, which are mobile internet devices. They discussed television. Uh, there's a whole thing about television. And Jeffrey Katzenberg, you know, of mm-hmm. DreamWorks, yeah. had this whole demo about how DreamWorks is moving completely to 3D uh, movies. All their movies will be 3D from now on. And they rolled out this huge screen, and we all reached underneath our chairs for uh, 3D glasses and put them on and watched uh, Kung Fu Panda in 3D. And uh, so there's... I don't know exactly where I was going, but it's that these chips and Intel technology is going everywhere. I mean, he had one demo where he walks in his fake house and it recognizes him through a face scanner and says, hi there, how you doing? And, uh, and then you go to his, his goes to his car, which they rolled up on stage, a BMW, a beautiful BMW. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it had uh, LCD panels built into the, the headrests and it had, you know, talking uh, GPS and the whole shebang. 
And there's a whole new Intel processor called, I believe, the 3100 Media Processor, my memory serves, that's designed to be extremely low power for fanless use, and it has all the graphics and media uh, rendering capabilities built into it. So we're going to see these everywhere. Uh, that's his hope. You know, yeah. He, meaning Pat Gelsinger and Craig Barrett and all the uh, Intel honchos who were there. Gelsinger was going on about how uh, the Internet in the near future will be 24-7 reaching into every modality of your life. Now, whether or not you want that is another thing. I'm not quite sure how many modalities I have in my life, <laughs> yes. uh, but I guess they're going to tell me. They're going to tell you and they're going to sell you. You know, Ah, uh, uh, great. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's a case of you know going, going into medicine, going into entertainment, uh, going into education, going into the whole nine yards. Right. Well, I can see why your uh, head was ready to explode after <laughs> spending several days doing this. Oh yeah, I mean, there are some of these sessions where let's see, let me let me look at the schedule here. How about uh, VPro Technology Activation Integration in the Expert Center, or you know, Remote and Upgrade Services Architecture SDK and Best Practices? Yeah, your head will explode after a while. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> so. I love it. I got it. I got to admit, I just love it. For more information on the Intel Developer Forum, you can see Rick's piece, Intel Developer Forum introduces your next Mac on Macworld.com. And thank you very much, Rick, for uh, filling us in. Whenever you want to talk, you know where to reach me. I do. Thanks. That wraps up this edition of the Macworld Podcast, sponsored by MYOB, small business counting and point-of-sale software, helping you to mind your own business smarter. I'd like to thank Derek Story, Rick Mischleski, and, of course, you for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at macworld.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 415-520-9761. If you like it, we'll play it on the air. This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, Mac, iPod, iPhone, Apple TV, and technology news, views, and information at macworld.com. Thanks very much for listening. See you next time.